Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Okay, I will officially go ahead and get started this morning by just welcoming all of you guys. Sawadikap, Sawadikap, welcome to Watung Yu. Welcome to our five-day course where I'm going to be sharing with you foundational teachings that are going to help you to get established on the path to enlightenment. So welcome to those of you guys that are here at the temple, and we have people that are joining us online as well for our course. Welcome to everyone. This five days is going to be an opportunity for you to gain wisdom about the teachings of the Buddha on the path to enlightenment. We're going to be sharing various classes as we go throughout the week. And you're going to see on Friday, I will invite you to a field trip where we'll go out into Chiang Mai to visit a forest temple and visit a temple on top of the mountain. We'll be talking about this as we go forward in the course. And that'll be a great time for you to start learning about the teachings of the Buddha through the architecture, the artwork, and all the ways that you can interact in a temple and kind of see how this temple can come to life because temples are learning centers, they're cultural centers, they're places where you can go and actually learn. So the more that you understand about the teachings of the Buddha over the next four days, then on the fifth day, it's really nice to go out through the architecture, the symbolism, the artwork, you can be able to understand the teachings of the Buddha. So just to get you guys started on this course and kind of helping you guys to understand how to really approach the teachings of the Buddha, I like to share with students when they first get started that it's very important that as you go forward with learning the teachings of the Buddha that you don't believe any of his teachings. There's nothing in his teachings that you should ever believe. What you're looking to do is you're looking to get to wisdom. The teachings of the Buddha aren't believe, 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 and then hope something good happens when you die. Instead, you're learning his teachings, examining them, investigating them, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, whether they're true or they're false. Then you're practicing his teachings in order to uproot certain pollutions that he discovered in the mind. We're going to be talking about those pollutions today when I explain to you guys what enlightenment is. In the morning, we have several sessions that I'm going to be sharing with you guys. One of those sessions is what is enlightenment so that you can understand what this is. And essentially, what the Buddha discovered is these 10 individual pollutions in the mind. And you're working to understand what those are and how to uproot them through the tools and techniques that he shared. Essentially, what the Buddha did is he shared the natural laws of existence. He's sharing with you how this natural world functions. Because when you lack wisdom about the natural laws, you're going to naturally make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. 
But when you can gain wisdom and cultivate that wisdom, knowing something is true without belief, then you can make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results. But as long as you lack wisdom, you'll make unwise decisions. You'll even struggle in the world because you won't have the wisdom to make certain decisions in the world. The teachings of the Buddha are to eliminate anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. By the time you get to enlightenment, you won't even have the slightest displeasure in the mind. The mind's always in a good mood. You're not even in a bad mood anymore. You'll notice that there's focus, concentration, clarity of mind, deep memory. Your personal and professional relationships will really blossom. And this doesn't come from belief because with belief, you don't know what's true or false. You're just believing something because somebody told you to perhaps believe it. But with the teachings of the Buddha, you're learning teachings, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, and you're practicing them. I'm going to show you how to do that as we go forward in our class, particularly tomorrow as we get started. Started with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I'm going to help you to learn teachings. I'm going to show you how to reflect on it, to independently verify it. And then I'll explain to you how to practice it so you can experience the results in your day-to-day life. Because as you're starting to experience more peace and joy in your mind, you'll know that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind, an improved condition of your life. So you're on this journey, or you're probably potentially considering embarking on this journey toward this enlightened mental state. And as you do, it's important that you always maintain this independent practice, that it's your practice to enlightenment. A teacher can't give you enlightenment. Nobody can force you or control you to attain enlightenment. It's your practice. It's your own independent journey to get to enlightenment, where a teacher is here to guide you and kind of show you the way and help you to understand how to progress forward. But it's you digging into the teachings, investigating them, examining them, that's going to ultimately lead to you cultivating wisdom to be able to see the truth and then start practicing the teachings and experience the real results. This Learning, reflecting, and practicing in order to discover wisdom about natural laws is something that you've already been doing in your life, but you just may not realize that you've actually been doing it. There's other natural laws that your mind was unawakened to, that you didn't have the wisdom of, and that over time, you've learned that natural law, you reflected on it, and you've practiced, where when you lacked wisdom of this natural law, you made unwise decisions that led to unwholesome results. And this is the natural law of gravity. If you remember back to when you were a child, you didn't understand the natural law of gravity. You had a lot of difficulties and struggles. We all did. We fell down. We hit our head. We hit our elbow, we broke our elbow open, or we broke our toys, or we broke other people's belongings because we lacked wisdom of the natural law of gravity. We struggled in the world and we cried maybe, and we got really upset when we fell down and had all kinds of complications with this natural law of gravity. But slowly but surely, we awoke to the wisdom of this natural law. We saw the truth for ourselves. We learned, we reflected on that natural law, and then we practiced and we got better and better at it. And we started making better decisions to the point where now we can ride a bicycle perhaps we can get on a motorbike and ride a motorbike we can climb ladders get on airplanes because we understand this natural law of gravity now so we're making wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results we might tie our shoes a bit tighter 
We might look at the surface of the sidewalk where we're walking to ensure that we're not tripping and falling down. We maybe aren't as giddy as we used to be bouncing around like a little kid, you know, getting so excited and falling down. You know, even things like this glass of water that I have here. You know, I understand not to put it here in front of me because if I do, it's easy to be able to tip over. But if I put it behind me, that's a better location. That's a wiser decision. But if you lack wisdom of the natural law of gravity, you might put it right in front of you. And there you might have a difficulty where you make an unwise decision to put it in front of you. And now there's some unwholesome result where the water gets spilled. So this natural law of gravity, as you fully awoke to it, you started making wiser decisions. You no longer struggle in the world. By the time of 10 or 12, you no longer struggled with this natural law of gravity. So the natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught are the same exact way. There are certain natural laws that your mind is currently unawakened to. And as we go in our course, I'm going to be helping you guys to understand what those natural laws are so that you can gradually learn them, you can reflect on them to independently verify them, and you can practice them. One of the biggest myths about the life story of the Buddha is people think that he sat under a tree, he meditated, and he instantly got to enlightenment. And in these types of environments, you'll tend to see a lot of emphasis on meditation. You're going to need to learn meditation, and I'm going to teach you that, and we're going to be practicing it here in our course as we go forward. But you can't just meditate your way to enlightenment. But you also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation either. It's a gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress that you make your way towards enlightenment. And you can independently verify this to be true, that anything you've ever done in life has been the same way. Whether it's learning English, whether it's some job or occupation or some skill that you've had, you had to gradually learn that. You needed to gradually practice, and then you experience gradual progress with your language skills, with your skills for work or occupation or whatever it is that you do. So you know that everything you've ever done or anything you've ever accomplished has been that way. It's not instantaneous. So this accomplishing of this condition of the mind where you can experience peace and joy, where you've purified the mind and it's no longer experiencing those discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others, it's going to be gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And here in this course, it's designed to be able to help you establish a really nice foundation. And then from here, there's all kinds of other opportunities for you to take other classes, courses, retreats, learning programs to be able to continue your learning so that you can gradually develop your practice and move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment. And you'll be able to see that this is occurring. If you practice the teachings, you're learning, you're reflecting and practicing, you'll see the condition of your mind improving because you know in situations where you once got angry or sad or frustrated or annoyed or feeling guilt or shame or fear, you felt lonely or bored at different times, you know those situations where you felt that way. And as you're training your mind in these teachings and you no longer experience those feelings anymore, in those same exact situations, you'll know that there's been an improvement to the condition of the mind. And it's these teachings that are going to help you to be able to accomplish that. So I'm going to introduce you guys to the course here and help you guys to understand what we're going to be studying over the next five days. But I like to just spend this little five or 10 minutes here to just share with you guys to be sure that you understand that it's your journey to enlightenment. It's your independent journey. A teacher is here to help you and guide you, but there's probably a million and one decisions that you're going to need to make along the way in terms of waking up in the morning, taking a shower, coming to classes, consulting with a teacher, reading a book, choosing to meditate, 
all these different things that you choose to do, that's what's going to lead to your enlightenment. It's not about what other people do. You can get to the point where your mind's completely liberated from these discontent feelings and you're experiencing nothing but peace and joy for the rest of your life. So again, welcome to all of you guys that are here, including those of you guys that are online joining us. For those of you guys that are here at the temple, I'd like to just share some kind of logistical things with you that there's a bathroom here at the temple at the back of the room, the very last door, there's a restroom. You're welcome to use it at any time. You can just get up and go use it during the class. We do take breaks at different times during the course. You'll see that I work those in where we have really nice long breaks, including an hour and a half lunch break as well. But at any point that you would like to use the restroom, feel free to use the restroom. If you'd like some water, we have water that's provided by our students that you're welcome to help yourself to that as well. We even have a couple little snacks over there. There was a children's retreat I taught last week. They left behind some snacks for you guys. So if you'd like to have some of the snacks, you're welcome to do that. So let me share with you guys the course material so that you understand about the course material. This course is titled Foundation in the Path to Enlightenment, Meditation Practitioner Course. It's a 30-hour course because we meet from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I start pretty much at exactly 9 a.m. each day. And if you are coming in a little bit early, you're welcome to do that as well. I usually get here around 8 a.m. each morning. And then I am here and kind of set things up. And then I usually go to breakfast around 8.30. And I leave the doors unlocked, so you're welcome to come in. So if you'd like to come in and relax, even do some of your own meditation practice if you'd like to do some stretching or yoga i know some people are into that if you're interested in doing any of that you're welcome to do that so make yourself at home because a temple is a learning center it's a community center it doesn't belong to anybody this classroom doesn't belong to me this building has been here for longer than i've been alive that we all just essentially take care of it that this is a national resource that the thai people have created in their country over the course of 800 to 1200 years as as Buddhist teachings came into the world here in the, this land of Thailand, they started to create these temples as community centers and places where people could come and get help with training their mind and understanding the world around them. So this temple is cared for by anybody who comes here. So it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you but yet it belongs to everybody. And the Thai people have entrusted us with this room to be able to use it to share the teachings of the Buddha. So I encourage you guys as you go throughout your week, if you'd like to take out the trash, if you'd like to sweep the floor or clean the bathroom or sweep the hallway or anything like that, it's up to you. You're welcome to do those kinds of things. We have supplies in this room here, uh, in this door, there's a, like a storage room. And sometimes students will just help themselves to cleaning up and caring for the space because it makes it available for us and it makes it available for other people in the future as well. So we'll be meeting here from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And we start class, like I mentioned, pretty much at 9 a.m. And then I tend to finish around 3, sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. It's not kind of a hard, fast stop, but you'll see that we tend to kind of finish right around 3 p.m. These are the contact information for me. If you need to contact me for any reason, I don't know that you need to do that. If you're here, you're here and I'll teach you. And if for some reason you're unable to come, then I understand no need to contact me and tell me that you're not coming because I'm just going to start at 9 a.m. each day. But sometimes students might need to contact me for various reasons. So I like to ensure that you guys have our contact information, that you're able to reach me at any point, either by email, by phone or WhatsApp, by line. And then you've got the website there that there's actually a website form that you can type into as well. In terms of what 
our course is structured and the way it's structured is I just kind of start with a little bit of a welcome and you guys, if you gather early, you get to introduce yourself to each other. I'm sure during breaks and lunch breaks and things like this, you guys will get a chance to meet each other and spend time with each other. That's one of the wonderful things about gathering for a course or a retreat like this is you get to meet other people that are into really wholesome things. You get to build relationships that can be long lasting and sustaining. So during breaks and lunch breaks and after class and stuff, feel free to interact with each other. I give you lots of time to be able to do that. So feel free to take your time to do that at any point during our course over the next five days. I generally start in the morning at 9 a.m. with chanting and meditation. We don't do that this morning because I'm helping you to understand the course and kind of set up the course. But this point forward, each morning you'll see at 9 a.m. I'm going to be starting with guiding you guys in meditation. This will help you to build up your meditation practice. So I start with chanting and then I move into meditation and I'll teach you guys how to do that as we go forward in the course. And then after the meditation, I will start around 9.30 with some teachings and discussion. This is often referred to as a Dhamma talk. I don't think about when I'm teaching you, I don't think about it as lectures or a sermon or anything like that. This is a discussion where I'm sharing content with you to help you understand the teachings of the Buddha. And you're asking me questions potentially to gain clarification and understanding about the teachings rather than sharing your opinions and views and trying to teach me anything. Instead, individuals usually come to the temple in order to seek understanding and seek information. I can guarantee you that what I share with you during this course is going to be different than what you currently know or what you currently understand. That's the whole reason why you come to a place like this, to be able to learn something that you don't understand. If you came to this temple, if you came to this course each day and everything that I taught you, you already knew or you already agreed with what I was sharing with you, there's no need for you to be here because you already understand everything that I'm sharing with you. But if you're in an environment where a teacher is sharing with you things that you don't understand, you haven't learned before, and it differs from what you currently understand about the world, this is actually really helpful because that's an opportunity for you to grow. So where you see those types of things where what I'm sharing with you is maybe different than what you've learned in other places or different than what you maybe have currently been exposed to, ask questions for clarification and gain insight to understand why it is that I'm sharing with you what I'm sharing. I will be able to help you to independently verify what I'm sharing is true. So if I'm ever teaching you something that you can't understand how to independently verify as being true, just ask me questions and I will be able to help you to understand how to independently verify what I'm sharing with you is true. Those of you guys here at the temple, you can ask any and all questions as we go through our talks each day. I would just ask if you could use the microphone in the white bowl. There's two of them there. You just turn it on with the gray switch. You'll see the lights come on and then it just takes about a second and you can start talking. The reason why we use the microphone is because it's easier for everybody to hear you here. You'll see as we go, there'll be more and more students that come at different times and we may even have people that are filling up the back of the room. So if you use the microphones, people here will be able to hear you, but also the people online will be able to hear you as well. Whereas if you just ask your question without a microphone, the people online can't actually hear your question. So as we go through our talks in the morning, I'll 
have a mid-morning break, somewhere around 10.30 or 11 or so. You'll see that we'll take a nice 15, 20 uh, minute break to give you guys a chance to use the restroom, get a snack, talk with each other, build relationships and things like this. In addition to the bathroom that we have here, there's also bathrooms outside, uh, the main temple bathrooms. So if this bathroom is being used, you can go outside and follow the signs to the main temple bathrooms. There's a male and female bathroom, very large bathroom with lots of options for you to take care of the things you need to take care of there. Then after our discussions in the morning, we take a lunch break around 12 o'clock, sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. And we usually take a good hour and a half lunch break to give you guys a chance to take your time to refresh yourself with food, uh, do whatever you need to do if you have things you need to do during the day. Some students, even after they eat, they choose to come back here and relax and talk, or some people even choose to take a nap. They lay out some mats and take a nap. So if you'd like to take a nap after lunch, you might even see me doing that from time to time. So feel free to have a little slumber here. We can have a, a nice little uh, slumber as we all rest and relax after lunch. And then I'll generally start back up around 1.30 before we go to lunch, I will tell you each day, okay, I'm going to be restarting at this time or that time. And then for those of you guys online, I will be giving you that same information in terms of like an hour, because I know you're on a different time zone perhaps. So if we're coming back at 1.30 and it's an hour and a half lunch break, I will just let you know it's an hour and a half lunch break. And then you can do the math with your time zone to know when we're going to restart again. Then after lunch, we'll start with some more teachings and discussion. And I usually use this time in the afternoon to be teaching you meditation. You're going to be learning breathing mindfulness meditation in the seated, lying, standing, and walking positions in this class. Even for those of you guys that are online, I've got it set up where I can use the camera to be able to teach you walking meditation. So you'll be able to learn that as part of our course this week. And then generally around three o'clock, we finish up. So sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later. It's very rare that class goes beyond 310 or 315 or something like this. But generally around three o'clock is when we usually finish up. And then as I mentioned on the fifth day, I will invite you guys to a field trip that we'll talk about probably as we get closer to Thursday. For those of you guys online, I apologize that you're not able to come to this field trip. But if you're ever in Chiang Mai and you would like to come to the field trip, you're more than welcome to. But I'll be sharing teachings with you from Monday through Thursday for four days. And then on the fifth day, those of you guys that are here local, you're welcome to come to the tour. And you'll also see that other people that aren't in the course will actually join us too. Some people come just for the tour as well. So if you have friends or family or people that you interact with this week, they can come and join the course at any point. Same with you. You guys can come and go as you please. But if you meet somebody today and they find out what you're doing and you're involved in a course and they would like to come tomorrow morning, sure, come on in. They are welcome to come. Or if they'd like to just come for the tour, they're welcome to do that as well. So this is kind of our general schedule and plan for the course. Then this course is based on this particular book. It's called Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Volume 1. You can download this from our website for free. You can take the file and go print it because there's print shops around in Chiang Mai where you can actually print it. Or those of you guys, if you have print shops in your country, uh, you can take it and go print it. You can also get printed versions here at the temple or if you have access to Amazon. A lot of countries have access to Amazon. You can get the same book there. I'm going to be 
teaching you guys chapters 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 19. And before I share each discussion, you're going to see which chapter I'm teaching you. The book goes into certain details that I don't have the ability to necessarily teach in a class, but there are certain things in the class that I can teach that aren't necessarily easy to write about. So the combination between the book and the class will help you to become fully informed about any particular topic that I'm teaching about. So if you would like to access this book, you can get it for free. The printed versions that we have here, we just ask that you reimburse us for the printing cost. And you'll see a list over there of what it costs for us to print the books. And then you can just provide that to us so that we can then buy some more for other people who are going to come after you. So there's a PDF version, there's a Kindle version, and there's a printed version. It's part of this book series that is titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. It's volume one, and it has a lot more content than what we're going to be discussing in this course. So it'll really help you lay a really nice foundation. And there's other programs that I teach where I go chapter by chapter. It's a seven-month program that we meet each Sunday and each Wednesday, either here at the temple or online, and we go chapter by chapter through this entire book. So it'd be helpful to acquire one of those. So what you're going to be learning in this course is today I'm going to be sharing with you guys the life story of Gautama Buddha. Because to get started on the path to enlightenment, you might be curious, who's this person referred to as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha? I'm going to share with you a bit about his life story that was documented in his original teachings. His students, after he died, documented his his teachings and they put in there his a little bit of his life story. So I'll share that with you so you'll understand a bit about the person who shared these teachings 2,500 years ago. Then after we come back from our break, I'm going to be sharing with you what is enlightenment. So you understand what enlightenment is, because if you're going to make your way to enlightenment, you would like to know what that is. Because if you were going to say, go to a new city, like here in Chiang Mai, just to the north, three hours, we have a city called Chiang Rai. If somebody was potentially talking to you about Chiang Rai and you were kind of interested to potentially travel to Chiang Rai, you'd probably have questions like, what is Chiang Rai? What is there? Uh, how do I get there? What's the way? How do I know once I've arrived at Chiang Rai? So enlightenment is the same way. If you're going to go on this journey to attaining enlightenment, you would like to know a bit about enlightenment and what is it so that then you can more easily navigate your way to it and then you'll know when you've actually arrived at enlightenment as well so by talking about it and discussing it with you to help you understand it you'll be able to more readily navigate your way to it and then you'll actually know once you've arrived then tomorrow i'm going to be sharing with you the four noble truths and the eightfold path this is the real foundational teachings of the Buddha. This is like the real core central teaching of the Buddha where everything else plugs into the Eightfold Path. And you're going to need to know this inside and out, backwards and forwards. I'm going to be using the original words of the Buddha to be able to help you understand these. So if you've been exposed to the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path and other learning environments, but you haven't learned with the original words of the Buddha, this will be a great opportunity for you to see what he actually taught. Because oftentimes what you see being shared in the world, whether it's on the internet or whether it's in books or even at temples and things like this, it's not necessarily based on the original words of the Buddha. So I'm going to be displaying the original words of the Buddha for you from the Pali Canon, which is the original source collection of his teachings. It's the largest collection we have of his actual teachings. So I'm going to be using his words, helping you see what they are, and then I'm going to be sharing them with 
you to help you understand how to learn them, how to reflect on them, and then how to practice them so that you can start experiencing the results. Because when you get the true teachings that are the actual words of the Buddha, that's where you're going to see what actually truly leads to enlightenment. So if you've been on this path for a period of time and you haven't quite understood how to actually move from where you are now to enlightenment, this could just be because you haven't been studying with the original words of the Buddha. The closer you get to what the Buddha actually taught, the more informed you will be and the more improvements that you can make to the condition of the mind. So I'll be sharing that with you tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, I'll be teaching you transforming the three poisons, craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three high-level pollutions that are in the mind. They're also referred to as the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. I'll be sharing that with you on Wednesday where you'll understand more of the picture. Because in the Four Noble Truths, you understand the problem, you understand the cause of the problem, the elimination, and the path forward. This is where you can have a real breakthrough when you study the Four Noble Truths to finally understand what's causing your anger, sadness, frustration, and others. It's not other people that are causing you to be angry. You'll actually see that it's your own mind that's causing that, and you'll be able to independently verify it. But then with the transforming of the three poisons, we're going to broaden and deepen our understanding of what's truly causing the mind to experience these discontent feelings, and then giving you the tools and the techniques of how to eliminate them from the mind. Then I'll be sharing with you the five precepts, a householder's guide to daily practice. If you've ever heard that the Buddha taught no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants, he actually didn't teach this. This isn't the way he taught. That sounds like a bunch of rules, a bunch of commandments. It sounds like it's black and white. The Buddha used much more illuminating language than no killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lying, and no intoxicants. And when you study this with the original words of the Buddha, which is what I'm going to do for you, is help you see the original words of the Buddha about the five precepts, you'll have this much more illuminating language to be able to fully understand what he's actually teaching you. He's not teaching you rules or commandments. He's not trying to force you or convince you to do anything. He's sharing with you the natural laws of existence, namely the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, helping you to understand certain decisions that you make that lead to wholesome results and certain decisions that you make that lead to unwholesome results. So the five precepts are five impactful decisions that you can make that will either lead to wholesome results or unwholesome results based on the wisdom that you have. So by using the original words of the Buddha with the five precepts, you'll be able to see what he actually taught. And you'll see that it's not necessarily black and white. And this is where you need to learn how to navigate these natural laws more directly. So I'm going to be helping you guys to understand that on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, we're going to be learning about this natural law of gamma and how does it affect me. Everything and anything that the Buddha taught pretty much comes back to this natural law of gamma in one way or another. So even when I'm teaching you the Eightfold Path and the Five Precepts, you're learning about the natural law of gamma. But on Thursday morning, we're going to go in and we're going to be talking about the natural law of gamma directly and specifically so that you'll be able to understand more about this natural law and how to extinguish any unwholesome results. This natural law of gamma, some people refer to it as karma. This is just a different language, which is Sanskrit, where the original 
language of the teachings of the Buddha is Pali. So I use the word gamma. If this translated to just one English word, I would just use that English word, but unfortunately it doesn't. So I still need to use this Pali word. Essentially what this means is cause and effect or action and result. It's the results of your decisions. It's not mystical or magical. It's not punishments and rewards. It's not a black cloud that's following you around. It's none of that stuff. There's no being or entity that's watching over what you're doing and ensuring that you get punishments and rewards. That's not what the natural law of gamma is. It's literally cause and effect or action and result. It's the results of your decisions. If you make wise decisions, it will produce wholesome results. If you make unwise decisions, it will produce unwholesome results. And with that lack of wisdom, you'll tend to make unwise decisions that leads to unwholesome results. So you can awaken to this natural law of gamma to be able to then make wise decisions that's going to produce wholesome results for you. So we're going to go in and talk about this natural law so you can understand it because there's certain unwise decisions that you've already made in this life that are now going to be coming back to you. And you're going to need to extinguish those unwholesome results, those unwise decisions by making wise decisions. So I'm going to be teaching you about that. Then also on Thursday morning, we'll be learning about what is merit. This is a specific type of wholesome karma that you'll need to learn about what it is and how to produce it. So we're going to be describing that and helping you understand it. And then, as I mentioned in the afternoons, I'm going to be helping you develop your meditation practice. We're going to be learning breathing mindfulness meditation in the seated lying, standing and walking positions. Today, after lunch, I'm going to be teaching you Buddhist chanting, and we're going to be doing meditation together after lunch as well. But then in the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to be deepening, helping you to understand this breathing mindfulness meditation. But you're going to be practicing this all the way throughout the course. In the mornings and in the afternoons, you're going to be learning and practicing meditation if that's what you would like to do. And then if you'd like to do some meditation at home as well, or at your hotel or wherever you're staying after the course, maybe in the evenings, this will get you used to meditating about two or three times a day over the next five days. And you'll start seeing the impact and the improvement and you can start integrating it into your life and it can start becoming more and more of a consistent thing that you're doing on a regular basis that you can kind of get started this week with seeing the effects of what it's like to be able to meditate two or three times a day and building up your practice. And you can see over the next five days how to have a real impact to improving the condition of your mind. Even in this short period of time, students sometimes come in on Wednesday morning. I've had situations where I've been teaching this course and students have come in on Wednesday morning and say, David, I got an email this morning that would have shaken me up and I would have been so frustrated with what I saw. But when I opened that email this morning, I understood based on what you taught on Monday and Tuesday, and I didn't get upset. I was calm. I understood what was happening. And normally I would have gotten so upset when I saw that. But they experience these results in as short as two days. Now, everybody's not going to have that same experience, of course, but that is the potential that you can experience because you'll know in situations where you once experienced frustration or anger or other discontent feelings, and you can gradually see that your mind's no longer experiencing those same feelings in certain situations that you once did experience those feelings. 
And then towards the end of our course on Thursday afternoon, I will share with you guys how to receive continued support on the path to enlightenment because these five days will help you get started, but then you might be interested in continued support beyond these five days. So I'm going to point you guys to some resources that you'll be able to continue your journey through classes, courses, retreats, and other resources that I share with you to be able to help you. So do you guys have any questions on any of these things that I've been sharing so far? Those of you guys that are online, you're welcome to ask questions by putting that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions yet. All right, so I'm going to move into sharing with you guys this very first topic. It's titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is where in volume one, I teach you guys a little bit about the life story of Gautama Buddha. When the Buddha taught... It was about you learning teachings that are going to help you on your journey to enlightenment, helping you to gain this wisdom, to be able to train the mind and get to this enlightened mental state. But I think it's important as you first get started to be able to learn a bit about this person's life so that you understand a little bit about him. I made it chapter 19 in the book because I was interested in focusing students on the core central teachings first. So the whole front part of the book is all about helping you to understand the teachings that are going to actually lead to your enlightenment. But when we get into chapter 19 of the book, you start learning a bit about the Buddha himself and what motivated him to go on this journey to get to enlightenment. So I'm going to share this with you guys based on the original teachings that are in the Pali Canon that describe his life story. And I'm going to describe his life story to you organized in this way. We're going to talk about his birth, his early life, his journey to enlightenment, his teaching career, and then ultimately what motivated him to actually go on this journey to enlightenment, which is what we call the four observations. So as we go, you're welcome to ask questions. Typically with this topic, I just teach the whole life story to you and then kind of open up the questions at the end. But you'll see my typical teaching methods and style is that I kind of teach for 20 or 30 minutes and then open up to questions, teach for about 20, 30 minutes, open up to questions. But with this particular topic, it's usually best if I just explain to you the entire life story and then open up the questions at the end. So let's talk about Siddhartha Gautama. That was his name as he was born. He was born in what we refer to today as Nepal. There's a city there called Lumpini, which is still existing today and this is where he was born and this is where his parents essentially were from that region of the world. Nowadays we call it Nepal in Northeast India which is where he generally spent his time. But during his lifetime, 2,500 years ago, those lines of this is Nepal and this is India didn't exist. There was just a bunch of kingdoms that existed during that time frame. It wasn't until later that we drew the lines and kind of divided them into countries. So he was born into a family where his father was a king and his mother was a queen. And his mother and father being married when his mother was pregnant, the customs during this time was that when the mother was about to deliver the baby, they would travel back to their homeland in order to give birth. And this is what they did. So that as she was 
getting nearer and nearer to her nine month time where it was time to deliver the baby, they organized a caravan and they started taking her back towards her homeland so that she could give birth around her family, her mother, her father, her aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, things like this. So on her journey back to her homeland, she actually goes into labor. So they need to stop the caravan and she gets out and she goes over to this tree and she holds on to the branch of the tree and she's trying to deliver the baby while standing up. The baby wouldn't actually come out of the normal birthing canal, so it ends up breaking through the side of her stomach. She ends up dying seven days later. This was 2,500 years ago, so they didn't have the medical technology to take care of her. Nowadays, we would just do a C-section and she would just be fine, right? But back then, she ends up dying seven days after the birth of Siddhartha Gautama. And because death of a mother and or infant was not necessarily uncommon 2,500 years ago, that they actually had things in place that would account for this. So the custom during that time is if the mother died at childbirth, then the mother's sisters would adopt the children as their own. So she had an older sister that ended up adopting Siddhartha Gautama as being her own child. So his stepmother was his aunt and she raised him as her own child. So when he was born, he comes out of the side of the stomach. There's the story in the original Pali Canon that says he initially walked seven steps as soon as he was born. Lotus flowers were blossoming under his feet. And then he spoke and he said, this will be my last life. I don't think that this part of the story is actually true because if this part of the story was true, the next part that I'm going to tell you wouldn't actually be needed. Sometimes when there's a historical figure like the Buddha that has done amazing things in the world, as teachings are handed down from person to person to person, generation to generation, people will tend to try to embellish their story in order to make them look better than they already are. But the Buddha has already done amazing things during his life. There's no need to embellish the story about what he did during his life or at birth. But I suspect that this is an embellishment of the story. Because if you have a son or any baby that walks as soon as it comes out of the womb, there's lotus flowers blossoming under the feet, and they start speaking right away, this next part of the story wouldn't be needed. Because the next part of the story is that his father summons advisors to come tell him what his son is going to become. Well, if your son or your daughter is walking as soon as they're born and they have lotus flowers blossoming under their feet and they start talking, you pretty much know this is a special child. There's something pretty amazing that's going to happen with this child. But his father needed these advisors to come talk to him and tell him what his son was going to become. This was a common practice, kind of asking fortune tellers to come and help you understand what's going to happen with your son. So he summons 108 advisors to come talk to him about what's going to transpire with his son over the course of his life. And 107 of those advisors tell the father, the king, that your son is going to be a great ruler, a great monarch, a great leader. He's going to rule over your kingdom. He's going to expand your territory and he's going to be this great ruler, this great king. And of course, his father, mm, that's my boy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's what I want. Right. Well, there's this one advisor who comes in at the very end and he apologizes to the king and he says, sir, I'm so sorry to deliver this news to you. Those other advisors were 100% correct. Your son is indeed going to be a great leader, but not in the way that you think. He's not going to be a monarch or a king. He's going to be a spiritual leader. His father didn't like this. He decides that just in case that this advisor is true and he's 
knowing what is actually truly going to happen with his son, he decides to sequester his son into the palace and never let him go outside and get involved in worldly affairs. Because he felt like if he started to go out of the palace into the kingdom, that he would start becoming involved in worldly affairs and that he would maybe have sympathy for the people in the kingdom. And then he would be interested in being a spiritual leader. So instead he decides to sequester him or keep him into the palace and try to woo him into the ways of being a monarch. He gives him wonderful food, great fabrics for his clothing. He gives him entertainment, beautiful women bathing him and taking care of him, royal riches, everything that you can imagine that a royal family would be able to have access to. He tries to kind of woo him into the way of being a monarch because he felt like if he could get his mind fixated on this lifestyle of being a monarch, he would never be able to experience that lifestyle any other way. So if he could get him kind of attached to all this great food and entertainment and great fabrics that he would never be interested in leaving that because he'd only be able to acquire this lifestyle through being a monarch and being a ruler and being real rich. Well, when he got to the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama realizes that he's about to become the king because during this period of time, you would become the king when you got to the age of 30 and your father would retire and then they would live kind of side by side and your father would help you to be a better and better king. So at the age of 29, Siddhartha Gautama realizes that he's soon to be the king and he's never even been outside the palace. How could he rule over these people and help this population of people if he's never even been outside the palace? So without his father knowing and against his wishes, he kind of sneaks outside the palace and he takes with him his royal attendant. His royal attendant is kind of like his chief of staff. And he goes out into the kingdom with him and Siddhartha Gautama has what's called the four observations. He sees a sickly person, an aging person, a dead corpse, and he sees a roaming aesthetic, somebody who's given up worldly possessions in order to be able to understand life better and be able to get to this enlightened mental state. So when he goes out into the kingdom and he sees the sickly person, this person is sick and ill. They're kind of disgruntled. Their family is disgruntled and agitated and annoyed. And Siddhartha Gautama has to ask his chief of staff, his royal attendant, you know, what's going on over there? And the royal attendant had to explain to them, well, look, you know, they're sick. You know, they don't have much money. And because of that, they're not going to be able to eat as good of food. They're not going to be able to take care of themselves. This person can't work and they're going to really struggle. And this was kind of new information for Siddhartha Gautama because he only ever lived in a royal palace. He never saw this kind of struggle before with somebody struggling with sickness that is then going to have difficulty supporting themselves and getting food. Then he sees an aging person, someone who's kind of older and decrepit. Their bones are protruding. Their joints are protruding, having difficulties walking. And again, there's all this disgruntledness. There's this frustration with that person themselves and the, the family around them. And once again, the royal attendant needs to explain to Siddhartha Gautama what's happening here, that this person is struggling in life and that this is what happens to us as we get older, that our body doesn't work as well. And this was all new information to Siddhartha Gautama. He didn't understand these kinds of things. And then he sees a dead corpse. And once again, he sees this misery and grief and despair, people really upset. 
And this has to be explained to him to understand that, yes, this is what happens to us at the end of this life. We die. He didn't even understand that at the age of 29, that there's death at the end of this life. So he starts to understand these first three observations of a sickly person, an aging person, and a dead corpse. And he starts to equate being in the kingdom to this suffering or this discontentedness, these struggles and difficulties in the world. And then he sees this fourth observation, which is an aesthetic, someone who's given up their worldly possessions in order to seek a better understanding of life. And he sees them meditating. And he has to ask his royal attendant, what's that? What's going on over there? And he's like, oh, that person, they're trying to figure out all this other stuff. They're trying to figure out why we get sick, why we age, why we die, why we're so discontent, why we're so angry and frustrated. That's what they're trying to figure out so that they can then help everyone else to be able to accomplish that. So Siddhartha Gautama decides that's what he's interested in doing, that he's not interested in ruling over the kingdom. This population of people that he sees in the kingdom, he sees nothing but misery and despair. This life that he's living in the palace is this great, wonderful life with great fabrics and food, entertainment, all these different things that his father has provided him. But he sees a very different life out in the kingdom, one that really takes him by surprise. So he decides that he's not interested in ruling over this misery and despair, but instead he would like to figure out why people are so discontent during this period of time of sickness, aging, and death so he can help them escape that. So he decides he's going to leave the royal palace. At this time, he has a wife and he has a young baby of infant. And they're actually at the palace and they're sleeping because it's almost nighttime and they're sleeping. And he kind of goes back to the royal palace with his royal attendant. He doesn't understand what we call craving, desire, attachment yet, but he understood enough that if he woke up his wife and he said goodbye and he kind of hugged his son goodbye and said goodbye, that maybe he wouldn't leave. So he didn't even wake them up. He just kind of looked in on them and kind of left. And when he left from the royal palace, he took with him his favorite horse. He took his royal attendant with him and he leaves out of the royal palace. And eventually as he leaves, he gets to a point where he turns his horse loose and he lets his royal attendant know that he can leave and he ends up cutting off his hair. At this time, it was common to grow your hair very long if you're a member of the royal family. This is the way that they would know that you're a member of the royal family is if you had this long, beautiful, flowing hair. Because those of us that are just commoners, we would be working in the fields, we would be working in businesses and shops, and we'd be doing a lot of laborious work. We wouldn't be able to take care of this long, beautiful hair. It would get all knotted and tangled up. We wouldn't have the ability to take care of it. So we kept our hair fairly short as a commoner because we're working in the fields and things like this. But the royal family, they could sit around with servants taking care of their hair, detangling it, shampooing it, and all these other things. So if you went out into the kingdom and you had this long, beautiful, flowing hair, they would know you're a member of the royal family. Nowadays, we just take pictures and we hang the picture of the king and the queen and everyone else all around the kingdom. And people know who the king and the queen are, right? We see them on the news. We see them in videos. We see them in pictures and photos around the kingdom. But during this time, they didn't have that technology. So it was this long flowing hair that people knew that you were a member of the royal family. So by him cutting off his hair, it's like saying, I'm never going back. Because he grew this hair for 29 years 
And nobody would ever believe that he was the king if he ever went back and tried to be the king again. It also helps you to do other things like we were talking about yesterday for some of you guys that were here. We were talking about realizing non-self and eliminating personal existence view. This is one of the reasons why we cut off our hair is because it helps you to disassociate with this self-image as being who you are. Not everybody needs to cut their hair in order to get to enlightenment, but this is one thing that you can do to help you to eradicate some of the pollution that are in the mind. So this is another benefit of him cutting off his hair and why he actually cut off his hair. So once he cuts off his hair and he kind of enters into this life of homelessness, where now he's essentially living on the street, just accepting whatever donations are given to him as food and water and clothing and shelter and medical care, he ends up taking up training with two teachers. First, he learns with one teacher And this first teacher was teaching him to hang himself upside down from the trees, laying on beds of nails, piercing his body with metal implements, doing all these disparaging things to the body, starving himself. He got to the point where he only ate one grain of rice per day. And as he was doing these disparaging things to the body, the thought at that time was that if you could cause this harm to the body, this physical pain, and you could overcome that with your mind, that you would get to enlightenment. Because there was many different people that were teaching during this time frame that were claiming that they had discovered what it took to get to enlightenment. So Siddhartha Gautama with a discontent mind was just trying to figure out how to solve that. So he went and studied with this one particular teacher. And after about 12 months or so, the teacher declared that he was a master of his teachings, that in 12 months, he had taught him everything that he could teach them. And Siddhartha Gautama had mastered those teachings. And he said, okay, you can go teach my teachings now. And Siddhartha Gautama realized that his mind wasn't any more peaceful at that time, having mastered those teachings than it was when he was in the palace. So he knew that he hadn't gotten to enlightenment yet. So he ends up going and studying with a second teacher for now another 12 months. And this teacher was essentially teaching him the same types of things. And he got to the same point where he was declared a master of the teachings. And he realized that his mind wasn't any more peaceful than it was when he was in the palace. So he gets frustrated with all of this. After two years, he felt like he had wasted his time. So he goes out on his own. He goes into the forest and decides to start training for himself. But the only things that he knows how to do is what his teachers had been teaching him. So he continued to disparage the body. He continued to starve himself, eating one grain of rice per day, all the way to the point where he was like on the brink of death. And his ribs were sunken in, his facial bones were protruding, his joints and things like this were protruding, all the way to the point where he was just about ready to die. And There was this mother and this young daughter who comes by and sees him meditating in this condition where he's obviously has not eaten and he's got these ribs that are sunken in and they have some rice and they plead with him to eat this rice and they kind of beg him to eat this rice. And he reluctantly accepts this rice and he starts eating it. And he realizes in that moment that when he was in the palace and living in this way with all these central pleasures, that that doesn't lead to enlightenment, that he had all the royal riches, all the wealth, all the wonderful food, and that didn't lead to enlightenment. And he realized when he left the palace, he started disparaging the body. And he was doing all these disparaging things by eating just one grain of rice per day. And he said that doesn't lead to enlightenment either. And he realized that he was on two opposite sides of the spectrum. So he starts coming to what's called the middle way. And this is where he starts having these realizations where he can practice this middle way. And he starts eating in my 
moderation from that point forward. He starts eating one meal per day. You don't need to eat just one meal a day in order to get to enlightenment, but you'll need to learn how to eat in moderation where you're not burdening the body with an extensive amount of food. And you're also not eating out of emotion. So he starts learning this middle way. He starts discovering these teachings on his own about how to train the mind and bring it to the middle. And then over the next four years, he ultimately gets to enlightenment and he knows that he's gotten to enlightenment because his mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. He no longer experiences any discontent feelings. So he knows that he has discovered what it took to get to enlightenment and he did it by himself, which means he's a Buddha or about to become a Buddha. Once a Buddha awakens to enlightenment, they've done that through their own independent journey. You can get to enlightenment, but you're going to need help. You're going to need guidance. You're going to need teachers to help you. One of the criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they get to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. And that's what he ends up doing. He gets to enlightenment by himself. And there's other criteria too, which I'm going to share with you here in a moment. So he gets to enlightenment by himself after this four-year period, which is really a six-year period. So after six years, at the age of 35, he's now enlightened. But he realizes what he has discovered that leads to enlightenment is vastly different than what anybody else is teaching at the time. They're teaching to disparage the body and cause this harm to the body through hanging yourself upside down from trees, laying on beds of nails, starving the body, piercing the body with metal implements. So he wasn't quite sure if the world was ready for his teachings. So he goes to this tree and he hangs out at this tree for about seven weeks. And this tree is where people attribute him attaining enlightenment at this tree. But in reality, he attains enlightenment over a six-year journey. And he really talks about attaining enlightenment over his multiple lifetimes. But it's really the six-year journey where he ultimately makes his final efforts to get to enlightenment. But he hangs out at this tree for seven weeks, contemplating whether or not he should share his teachings with others, because he wasn't sure that the world was ready to hear what he had to say. Well, after seven weeks of considering whether or not he should share his teachings or not, he decides that he's ultimately going to share his teachings. And he starts going back to the area where he was originally learning with those first two teachers. And he encounters four of his previous classmates and one of his previous teachers. These five individuals become his first five students. But when they first see him and they see him walking towards him, they don't think that he's actually enlightened. They don't realize that he's become a Buddha because they see him with meat on his bones. To them, in order to get to enlightenment, you need to be starving yourself. So they weren't eating. You know, they had you know, just bones and skin essentially. And they see him coming towards him with all this meat on his bones. And they thought he had given up on getting to enlightenment and gone back to the palace. So they start mocking him. They start joking him. They start talking bad about him. And by the time you get to enlightenment, if somebody's doing that, you're not going to be affected by it. Your mind's not going to be angry or frustrated because somebody's talking negatively about you. So the Buddha's mind wasn't shaken up by this mocking and this joking and what they were saying. So he just walks over towards them and he sits down and then he takes his hand and he touches the earth. This is the one and only miracle that he performed during his life where when he touches the earth, he calls animals to come to where he's at. So once he touches the earth, there's deer, birds, squirrels, rabbits, all these different animals that come to where he's at. And these five people see that he's just done that and they sit down and they're like, okay, we're going to listen to this guy. 
you know, it looks like something pretty significant just happened. Let's listen to him and see what he has to say. So then he delivers his very first discourse. This is called the Four Noble Truths. In four simple statements, he explains the problem in the mind. He explains the cause of the problem, the elimination of that problem, and then the path forward of actually how to eliminate the problem 100%. And because of the nature of the teachings of a Buddha, a Buddha's teachings are independently verifiable. So when he taught them, they learned those teachings. Then they could reflect on them there as he was describing them. And then they could practice them and be able to see the truth for themselves. So they could see that he had discovered indeed what it took to get to enlightenment because he could explain to them in four simple statements what the problem was in their mind, the cause of that problem, how to eliminate it, and then the entire path forward. So they could see from that moment that yes, he had attained enlightenment based on being able to independently verify his teachings. And then from that point forward, he continues to teach and teach and teach and more and more people come to be around him and countless people get to enlightenment during his lifetime. One of the ways that people would sometimes come in contact with him is that there would be various teachers that were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment and they would have various students that were learning from them. And sometimes that teacher would come to the Buddha and they would come and be interested to talk to the Buddha and try to understand his teachings because a Buddha doesn't have any outward characteristics of them being a Buddha, like it's not like their ear is turned a certain way or their nose is turned a certain way and everybody knows that they're a Buddha. So there's not any kind of outward characteristic that would identify him as a Buddha. So not everybody knew that he was actually a Buddha during his lifetime. There were some people that didn't know he was a Buddha. A Buddha doesn't go around performing a bunch of miracles to try to convince people that they are a Buddha so that people would learn with them. Because their teachings are independently verifiable, they will just share their teachings into the world and then whoever is interested in learning those and taking the effort to independently verify them, they will then be able to learn them. So these teachers would sometimes come around who we know was the Buddha, but they didn't necessarily know that he was a Buddha. And they would start talking about his teachings. And in some cases, this other teacher with all the students around, the Buddhist students and their students, this teacher would get so angry and frustrated and agitated that they would get up and kind of storm out of the meeting, storm out of the conversation. And people knew like, oh my goodness, they're not enlightened. Look how angry they are. Look how frustrated they are. And sometimes that person's students would then become students of the Buddha. And in other cases, this teacher with their students would be talking with the Buddha and they would be understanding his teachings so well. And the Buddha would articulate these teachings to the point where this teacher could see clearly he's enlightened. And now that teacher would become a student of the Buddha and bring with them that person's students. So the Buddhist community of practitioners and students just grew and grew and grew to the point where he ultimately died at the age of 80 and countless people had gotten to enlightenment by the time of his death. And then shortly thereafter, his teachings were preserved in such a way that countless more people got to enlightenment after his death. These are the three criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. They get to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. They then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing their independently discovered teachings with countless people so that countless people during their lifetime will actually get to enlightenment. And they know they got to enlightenment because they could see the condition of their mind. It was peaceful and joyful for the rest of their life. 
Then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people will get to enlightenment after their death. So those are the three main criteria what make a Buddha a Buddha. We're going to talk about this a little bit more here as we get going this morning so I can share with you more of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. So people during his lifetime, they would refer to him sometimes as the Buddha or Gautama Buddha or master teacher Gautama or sometimes just aesthetic Gautama, which means monk Gautama because not everybody understood what a Buddha was and that he was actually a Buddha. It's actually helpful for a Buddha to not let people know that they're a Buddha. Because if everybody knew that he was a Buddha, people would be on their best behavior when they were around him, and he wouldn't be able to observe their mind and then help them with teachings that they needed. So if everybody was on their best behavior around the Buddha, he wouldn't be able to see them get angry and frustrated and agitated, and then be able to share teachings with them to help them. So here, I just share with you the birth of the Buddha, the early life, the journey to enlightenment in his teaching career, that he dies at the age of 80. But it was that initial observations of sickness, aging, and death that ultimately motivated him. And then that fourth observation of the aesthetic. What he discovered is that the reason why people's minds are discontent when they're sick is because they're craving permanent health. They're wanting to be permanently healthy, not realizing that this body is impermanent. And as long as you're craving permanent health, thinking that this body is permanent, then when you're experiencing sickness, you'll be disgruntled and angry and irritated. And then the same thing with aging, that one might be craving or longing and yearning for permanent youthfulness. And now not realizing that this body is impermanent, when you're starting to age and you're feeling those aches and pains, you can experience the anger or the annoyment or the agitation. And then the same thing with death, that when either you're nearing death or people around you are dying, the mind is craving for this being to be permanent. You're or wanting grandma or grandpa or mom or dad or brothers or sisters or your own life craving permanence. Even though you intellectually know that you're going to die at the end of this life, the mind is craving to exist in the world permanently or craving for other people to exist in the world permanently when all these things are impermanent. This is part of the three universal truths and the four noble truths, which I'm going to walk through with you tomorrow in order to help you understand. But this initial observations of sickness, aging, and death is what motivated him to go on this journey. And he discovers the reason why people people's minds are discontent during this period. And he also discovers why we keep experiencing sickness, aging, and death over and over and over again. It's the cycle of rebirth, which is something that you can learn about as well as part of your journey to enlightenment. Even the cycle of rebirth, you don't believe it. You can actually independently verify it, that it's true. And as long as the mind is experiencing these discontent feelings, it's not yet enlightened. And by the time you get to enlightenment, not only have you eliminated the causes and conditions that lead to discontent feelings, Feelings, you also eliminate the causes and conditions that lead to continuous rebirth. So not only can you get to peace and joy in this life, but you can get to the point where you're not coming back to experience sickness, aging, and death over and over and over and over and over again, because that's what the Buddha discovered is actually occurring. He could see from his own experiences that he had been reborn multiple times and that you can escape that through attaining enlightenment. So one of the things that I'll share just to sum this up and then I'll open up to any questions that you guys have is that no one ever said that life would be easy, but it's also not supposed to be tough. Learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha, it's not easy. 
but it's also will ensure that life is not tough. By learning and practicing to train your mind, you can overcome all those struggles that you experience. The Buddha is a human being, just like you and I. He's a human being. And that's why you see all the pictures that I use of the Buddha, whether it's on these slides or any of the other things around the temple. I use this picture that depicts him in a very human way because the statues that you see of the Buddha, that's not actually what he looked like during his lifetime. He didn't wear a crown on his head. He just looked like a human being, just like you and I. We're all human beings. Just like he got to enlightenment on this journey that he took in order to get to this improved mental state, you can experience the same thing. He's human just like you. The only difference is that he was able to do it by himself. And I'm going to explain to you in a little bit why he's able to do that. But you can get to enlightenment just like him. He had struggles and he had difficulties in life before he was enlightened. But by the time he trained his mind to get to enlightenment, you no longer have those struggles and difficulties anymore. So while you may have certain challenges and difficulties or struggles, it may feel like life is really tough sometimes. That's only because there's a certain lack of wisdom in the mind. As you cultivate your wisdom and you train your mind, you can overcome all those struggles and difficulties where life doesn't feel tough anymore. By the time you get to enlightenment, things can be at ease where you can address things that are challenges or issues in your life because you'll have the wisdom of how to address them. Where right now you might have certain struggles and difficulties. So learning and practicing his teachings is not easy, but it's also not difficult either. You have someone who's here to help you and guide you along the path. And as long as you're willing to do the work, then you'll be able to see slowly but surely that the condition of your mind and your life gradually improves. So let me see if you guys have any questions about the life story of the Buddha. Uh, remember, if you ask questions, if you could use the microphones there, that way the people online will be able to hear you. We'll be able to hear you here at the temple. And for those of you guys online, if you could put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom, that'd be wonderful. So do you guys have any questions? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to in this discussion here, and we'll pick it up in 20 minutes, which is will be essentially 10.30 Thai time. And I'm gonna pick it up with sharing with you guys enlightenment. What is enlightenment? I'm gonna be describing to you what this is so you can understand that this goal of working towards the enlightened mental state. So I'm gonna go through that in a lot of detail and give you guys an opportunity to ask any and all questions that you like about this mental state of enlightenment. So if you'd like to take a break, get a snack, use a restroom, get to know each other, you're welcome to use this space and any area in the temple. So again, thank you guys for joining. It's nice to see all of you guys here. It's a great way to start a new year, learning the teachings of the Buddha and helping you guys to improve the condition of your mind through training the mind. So it's going to be a great week together. And as you guys have questions, feel free to come and let me know and ask them in classes as well. So we'll see you guys at break, which will be 1030 is when I'll restart. So thank you all so much. We'll see you guys after the break. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.